0: For the last couple of weeks, we've been watching Jesus, seeing what he's like. We've seen that he loves his friends, and sometimes he loves his friends in ways that we don't expect. We've seen that he enters our sorrows in order to overcome death, and in all of that, we have seen that he is the point. As the point, we find today that he requires a response. This morning's passage, as it wraps up this particular story about Jesus, shows that in the end, as we watch Jesus, it's impossible to be a casual observer. We see this in John 11, verses 45 to 53. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus requires a response. Not so much by demanding it, just by showing up and being who he is. Because of who Jesus is, when he arrives, people have to decide how they're going to respond to him. And really, the possible responses are limited. They boil boil down to two choices that people have already started to make in John's Gospel. Look at chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. There's a divide that's starting, and we see that divide grow in this morning's passage. For some, the purpose of raising Lazarus from the dead worked. We see that here in verse. 45, many believed in him. And we would expect that. That's not a surprise. The believed in him part. What maybe is a surprise is the the many part. That first word, why many? Why not all? He's just raised somebody from the dead. Why isn't that enough? But it's not all, it's many. Many believed, in verse 46, but some of them, but some of them responded with something other than belief. But some of them went, in fact, maybe more literally, but some of them went away. Remember last week, verse 37, the very same phrase is used, but some of them. And it's subtle in some ways, but it's a it's a hint in other ways. That there are those who know as they're as they're standing around Lazarus has died and they see how much Jesus uh, loved Lazarus but some of them said could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying uh, could have kept this man from dying they know that he has opened the eyes of a man born blind and yet they question him If he could have kept him from dying, then why didn't he? If he doesn't use his power in the way that we would, then can we really trust him? This kind of power that Jesus shows that he has can be remarkably useful if you can control it, if you can use it in the way that you want to. And people had seen that before as well. In chapter 6 of John, Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's one of the few miracles that all four of the gospel writers choose to include. And it catches people's attention. It kept catches people's attention even in the moment. And they say, when they see it happen, in effect, I would vote for that guy. If we put him in charge, then we can get more of what he's giving us. It's as if they say, We will trust you. If we get to decide what your power gives us, we would like to use your power to set up our kingdom. And in the meantime, we'll make you king in order to do it. And Jesus sees it coming and he says, I'm not going to have anything to do with this. This is John 6 following the feeding of the 5,000 and look at his response in chapter 6, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He's not not going to be king on their terms. So he sees it coming and he he withdraws to the mountain. And then in the middle of the night, he crosses the Sea of Galilee, uh, partly by walking on the water. And in the morning, people notice that he's gone from the side of the sea that he had been on before, and so they go looking for him, and they find him on the other side of the sea. And then when they found him, this is chapter 6, verse 25, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And that question doesn't really matter, so Jesus answers the question that does matter. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Signs are meant to point to something. He says, My signs point to me, and they call you to trust in me. And for you, he says, the miracle didn't result in faith. The miracle resulted in food. The sign ended with itself and he said that's not what my signs are for but he said that's really all you want you're happy just to get the signs and jesus is willing to give them bread he's willing to give them literal bread but he's unwilling to only give them bread he's come to give them more than that and that's all that they want he says it's not enough and it's not what i came to give do not labor, he says in verse 27, for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And they begin to recognize, oh, you're talking about something spiritual. So, so what, what are you talking about if you're talking spiritually? What must we do, they say, to be working the works of God And it's at that point that they've gotten closer to the real question, so Jesus gives them the real answer in verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's what the signs are about. They're about showing who Jesus is and calling people to trust in him as he is. He's not selling his power. He's not selling access to it. And that's what people want. If you can keep the signs coming, you can keep the bread coming. If you can keep the power with within your control, then you can get from it what you want. And Jesus wants something better for them and for us. And if you can't get from the power what you want, then you have no further use for Jesus. So if you can, you sell him. And that's what people seem to do back in John 11. Many of them believed, but some of them went went away to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. <clears throat> some people trust him and some people use him. And often when people use him, they use him to prop up their relationship with power. And that appears to be what happens in this situation. People go away to the powerful, and they tell them, they give them the inside scoop on what Jesus is doing. There really are only two choices with Jesus. Jesus, by showing up, by virtue of who he is, requires a response. It's not a short answer response. It's not even a multiple-choice response. In the end, it's really only a true-false response. Is Jesus true, and will I receive him as he is? Or is Jesus false, and will I reject him? Will I sell him? Or will I kill him? They go to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees recognize that Jesus is a threat to the power that they have negotiated for themselves responding to Jesus requires other people to respond to Jesus you require you, you respond um, positively and it calls for a response from other people people respond negatively and it calls for a response from Jesus followers it doesn't allow them to be neutral and here people respond by believing And some people find that belief in Jesus to be a threat to their very lives, especially those who have managed to negotiate power for themselves. The Jewish leaders have a lot to lose. They exist in a very sensitive balance of power with Rome. So the nation of Israel has been overtaken by superpower after superpower. Assyria, Babylon, uh, Greece, Medo-Persia, and now Rome. Rome is the major power. And Rome has taken over a huge area of the world, and that includes the land of Israel. And the way that Rome tends to rule is by saying, we're in charge. We're in charge. Caesar, our king, is the king of the whole land. You have to pay taxes and you have to keep the peace. But other than that, they're not interested in micromanaging. And so if you say that Caesar is king and you pay your taxes and you keep your pe- and you keep the peace, then those who are in charge on the ground in your area can basically be in charge. And that is the relationship that the leaders of the Jewish nation find themselves in now. They are in a place of glorified middle management. And as long as they can maintain the message to Rome that Caesar is king, and as long as they can pay their taxes, and as long as they can keep the peace, then they can stay in their position of power in a local sense. It's a delicate balance. And now here comes someone who is threatening by virtue of who he is to disturb that balance. Because Jesus can't be king and have Caesar be king at the same time and in the same way. They can't both be ultimate king. And the leaders see the threat. They recognize that the Romans will shut things down if this keeps going. What are we going to do? They say, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What are we to do? This man performs many signs and they can't deny that. And the right answer to the question is actually found in chapter 6, verse 30. Jesus has told them, this is the work of God that you believe in his son. And in verse 30, the people ask him, well, what sign do you do that we may believe in you? Keep the signs coming and we'll believe, but... That's not the way that signs work. Faith starts with trusting in the heart of the one who does the signs. And if you don't, if you find him to be a threat instead, then you will find his signs to be a threat as well. Signs are only good if you trust the one who does them, if you trust in his heart, if you trust him to rule you. But if you're sold out to power and if you're if you're concerned about uh, maintaining your own power then his signs will be a threat and they find it to be a threat so here they are in this delicate power arrangement with Rome and they say what in the world are we going to do everybody's going to believe in him and if that happens then Rome is going to say game over they're going to come and take away our place and our Nation. Our place probably refers to the temple. Same term is used to refer to the temple elsewhere. What's the temple to them? Well, the temple to the Jewish leaders is much like their corporate headquarters, and they have their nice corner offices and quarterly bonuses, and it's a representation of their prestige and influence and power. And even under the rule of the Romans, the, the Jewish leaders still have what they call our nation. They'll come and take away our place and our nation. Within this nation of Israel, even though it's part of the greater Roman Empire, there still is some kind of national identity. This is our people. We are the people of Israel, and the leaders need that. They need Israel to have a national identity because that's what gives them their identity as the power holders in Israel. If you're a ruler of Israel, and Rome says, enough, no more Israel, then you lose everything you're living for. They're nothing to the Romans. If they're only a part of the Roman Empire, then they lose everything they live for. There's something To Israel and in order to continue to be something they need Israel to survive the survival of Israel matters because it's our nation it's our temple it's our people or is it John has actually answered that question at the very beginning of the gospel of John when he says that Jesus verse 11 Jesus came to his own That is his own things, his own temple, his own nation. These things are his. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This will be relevant for us as Jesus' people as well. When that claim comes near, the claim that this is mine, this is my temple, this is my people, when that claim comes near... You only have two choices. Jesus requires a response. So the the leadership asks, how can we protect what's precious to us? How can we preserve life as we know it? It's really a way of asking, what must we do to be saved? And they're at a loss. They're looking at each other thinking, what in the world are we going to do? But the answer is actually very, very clear. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks clearly, if, if not politely. Verse 49, you know nothing at all. You don't know anything. You don't know. How can you not see this? And he's not arguing about what they say in verse 48. That This idea that the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. He knows that. He's not arguing. When he says, you don't know anything, he's referring to the first part of verse 47, or the first thing they say in 47. What are we to do? It's very clear to Caiaphas what they should do. As the high priest, he is fluent in the language of sacrifice. Our life depends on the death of Jesus. which may sound very familiar to Christians and is true. But who does he think Jesus needs to be sacrificed for? He says it's better for one man to die for the nation. But his real motives slip out. Notice what he says. Notice how he describes this. He says, it is better for you that one man should die for the people. How are we going to preserve what's ours? It's better for you if Jesus dies for the people. You want to keep what's yours? You want to keep your power and prestige and influence. You want to keep your place and your nation. Then he needs to be sacrificed for it. He has to die. Do you know that there are two ways? This is a true false test. There are two ways to trust in Jesus' death. Either he dies so that you can get rid of him, or he dies so that you can belong to him. Either way, he dies because the saving power and plan of God are unstoppable. It looks like the power brokers are in charge, and it would be really tempting to say, we need to do whatever we can to stop them and get power back for ourselves so we can use it in the right way for Jesus. But that's not the way of Christ. We begin to see who's really in charge in verses 51 to 52. The high priest speaks infinitely more than he knows. Because he is forced to deal so directly with Jesus, he is forced to speak with a clarity that he doesn't even realize he's using. He actually gives the exact wrong response to Jesus. It is a perfect mirror image of how we ought to respond to Jesus. And when you look at that perfect mirror image, you actually see the mission of Jesus with remarkable clarity. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord. He speaks more than he knows. But being high priest that year, he prophesied, again, without realizing it, that Jesus would die for the nation. He would die for the nation. This is not only better for the leadership. This is better for the nation. It was better that one man die for the people but not in the way that the high priest thought. He thought that the benefit of Jesus' death had to be restricted. He thought Jesus had to die in order to protect what was theirs. But Jesus' purpose was for the benefit of his death to be expanded. We could even say exploded, to be spread through the whole people and not only to the nation of Israel, not for The nation only, verse 52, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The Jewish leadership wanted to preserve the privileges of the priestly elite. That's what Jesus, in a sense, wants to do as well, only in the right way. The nation, the temple, the people, are not yours, they're his. And he has a purpose for them that he is fulfilling without the leadership even knowing it, that they are actually helping to fulfill. It's a purpose that was described when God saved his people from the first nation that oppressed them. In Exodus 19, starting in verse 4, God speaks to his Rescued people, his redeemed people. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. A kingdom of priests. God says it's not your job to secure your place in your nation. He says that's my job. Your job is to be a kingdom of priests. To represent, to bring the world to me and to represent me to the world that all nations would be brought together to know me and to worship me and to dwell with me. Priests do this by sacrificing. And so our great priest, our great high priest, leads the way. Even under the wicked leadership of Israel's leaders at the time, Here's where this goes, and Jesus knew this is where it was going, verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That doesn't sound like a policy that favors religious liberty. That sounds very, very oppressive. But that word, so... So they made plans. Doesn't only refer to verses 49 and 50 and what the high priest says they ought to do. It also refers to verses 51 and 52. This is not only the plan of corrupt leadership. This is the plan of God. A God who can work through even evil motives. This is the way the death of Jesus is described in Acts 2.23. When Peter is speaking about what Jesus has done, and even he finally, by the Spirit's enlightenment, understands. Here's what he says in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The Romans did it. They're responsible. The Jewish leadership did it. You're responsible. God did it. From an entirely different heart. And yet this was by his definite plan and foreknowledge. God had infinitely better plans in mind than anybody else did. Jesus turns things back around. And so let's remember the way of our King. The way that our King secures our place in our nation. It cannot be taken away from us. He He exercised his power by dying for us. And so it's crucial for us to remember who it is that calls for a response. This is not somebody who simply shows up and demands that we speak highly of him. This is the one who loves his friends. This is the one who loves his friends in ways that are sometimes very surprising. This is the one who enters our sorrows in order to undo death. This is the one who is the point. And there really is only a true false option in our response to him. Our place and our nation are secured by Jesus. We don't have to exist in a delicate balance of power with the powers of the world. And so for us today, Christians, This is a really good opportunity for us to show that we are not using Jesus as a social tool. That we're not using the name or the generally positive reputation of Jesus to endorse our attempts to get in with the powers of this world. We have to be honest about the connotations, the the inherited meanings that the term evangelical has taken on in recent years. Now, some of those connotations are fair and some of them are unfair. It differs from person to person. But one of those connotations of the word evangelical is social conservatives who have sold out to power. This is this crisis season that we face right now. With all of its difficulty and challenge and trauma, is an ideal opportunity for us to show what evangelical really means. Not so much to redeem our own reputation as evangelicals, because the word evangelical isn't talking about us, it's talking about someone else. It's talking about Jesus, and it's saying that Jesus coming as he is, as king, as the king who saves his people, secures his nation. Does it by dying? It's good news. It's good news. Good news that the power structures of this world cannot undo. Evangelical means that we have good news about our king. And at a time when people are beginning to recognize their needs, sometimes in very, very practical ways, this is a really good time for us as bearers of good news to demonstrate that good news. So Grace family, let's be watching for ways that we can demonstrate good news by, in the words of of Paul and Titus, by doing good deeds to meet pressing needs. We're going to be doing some work to roll out some tools that we can use to help each other to do that. We want to be watching for ways to do this just on the fly for your neighbor, for somebody in a grocery store, if you can do it with proper social distancing, to show care with your words and with your actions, to give yourself. That's the way Jesus exercised his power, and he is with us as we do this. We have good news about our king. He is our great high priest who is here for us, and we live as his kingdom of priests. We carry out his work, even in this very difficult time. Father, we ask for your help as we do this. We see that your very first followers required the power of your spirit to function as a kingdom of priests, and we require that today as well. So, would you give us insight? Would you give us flexibility? Would you give us power to live that out today and to trust that Jesus? is our great high priest who loves his friends, sometimes in surprising ways, who enters our sorrows in order to undo death, who is the point of our life, who is the one who gives us everything that we need. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.